You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 175 of the Common Descent Podcast. Hey, that's a five. It is. And as is our tradition these days, episodes that end in a five are plant episodes, which means, as regular listeners will already be aware, that after we do our news and such, we will be joined by Dr. Ali Baumgartner, our friendly neighborhood, not actually in this neighborhood, paleobotanist <laughs> who comes on to talk with us this episode about our topic, plant defenses. Yeah. This is kind of an unintentional counterpart to two episodes ago <laughs> where we did herbivores. Yep. <laughs> this episode, we will be talking about the various strategies that plants use to defend themselves, physical strategies, chemical strategies, all sorts of ways that plants are truly terrifying creatures. Yes. Yeah, so anyone listening to the herbivores episode wondering, I wonder how plants feel about that. That's what this that, episode is That's this episode. We'll talk about what plants do, what techniques and strategies they use, and what we know about the evolution of those things through time. We've already recorded that part of the episode with Allie. It's awesome. You're going to love it. Yes. No. Super, super interesting Plants are terrifying. <laughs> this episode, you can blame this episode on these requesters who suggested this topic. Alejo, Iosialectus, Oddweaven, Jackson, Lachette, and Dream Centipede. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for those requests. We hope you have a good time. Yes, indeed. A few announcements before we move forward. Number one, as always, we have a Patreon. We Our do. Patreon. You find a link to the Patreon in the episode description. The support of our patrons helps us to do all the things that we do for the podcast. We are extremely grateful. We show that gratitude with a bunch of goodies that patrons get access to, live streams with us, bonus content, all sorts of things. One of the benefits patrons can get at a certain level is their name shouted out here on the podcast. This episode, we would like to say hello and welcome to Erica, Lily, and Avi. Thank you so much. Thank you for your support. Hey, you, if you'd like to support the podcast and help us do all of our cool science communication stuff, check out our Patreon link in the episode description. Speaking of cool stuff that we do with the podcast, this episode comes out right at the start of October, mm -hmm. which means it is officially spooky season. It's time. All throughout October, we will be releasing episodes speculatively evolving monsters, and this year's monsters are dragons. Yes. We have already recorded the episodes of Spooky. They're so much fun. We can't wait for people to get to hear them. Every Saturday in October, a new episode with new dragons for us to evolve in our fictitious setting. And then... In November, on the 11th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, we will be having our first ever spooky live stream. Anyone will be able to join it. It'll be on YouTube. Check out all of our online places for reminders of those details. And if you want to keep up with the discussion every Saturday, we have a spooky channel, you know, chats in the Discord. So check that out if you yes. want to see what everyone's thinking and their ideas. The link to the Discord can also be found in the episode description. And now a big new announcement. We mentioned at the beginning of the summer that we had officially hit 500 patrons yeah. on our Patreon. And we promised we would do something exciting to celebrate that after the summer stuff was over yes. that we were very, very busy with. The time has come. 
our 500 patron celebration includes some new stuff on the Patreon and a giveaway. Yeah. We're going to be making some updates to the Patreon. So it's a little bit of a makeover. You'll see some changes in the tier pricing, the tier descriptions, our information. Nothing major that's going to affect any existing patrons. But the big change is we are adding new tiers. Mm -hmm. Right now, there are five tiers on our Patreon that people can join at. Species, genus, family, order, and class. We are officially this fall adding the Phylum and Kingdom tiers to our Patreon. These are upper level tiers, so for bigger pledges with new goodies, including amongst them special t-shirts that Mm -hmm. are being designed right now. And as part of the celebration, we are also doing a giveaway for patrons. All of our active patrons will be eligible to win prizes in this giveaway. The top prize being an honorary one-year membership to the new kingdom tier, which means all the benefits that come with that. Yes. Anyone who is a patron as of the end of this year, as of December 31st, will have their name in the running, and we will announce the winners and draw the winners during our anniversary live stream in January. So if you would like to participate in this giveaway, hop on down to the episode description, find that link to Patreon, become a patron for us at any level you want, and you will have a chance to win some prizes and possibly the grand prize of all the cool stuff. Yes. We're very excited to be able to do this. We we love interacting with our patrons. We love receiving the amount of support that we do. Thank you to all of our patrons, past, present, and future, for helping to keep the podcast running. Yes, and it it is very exciting to have reached this point with the Patreon, both in numbers, but also to get to update it and provide some some new goodies and and, and thank yous for you all. If you want those details again, and you don't want to have to re-listen to this part, Check out our website where we will have the details written down. Also, oh, we're making changes to the website. Yes. So when you go to our website, you might notice some new things, some new format stuff there. Check it out. Let us know if anything's broken as we do our website makeover. Yes, indeed. <laughs> some things will be moving around. Some pages will be getting added and updated. So yes, please, if something doesn't work, to <laughs> let us know and I'll fix it as quickly as possible. It's an exciting time here in the fall. Lots of things to be excited about in between episodes of Spooky. (laughs) With all that out of the way, let us move on to the news. Every episode, we like to start off before our main topic by discussing some news from the world of paleontology, things that have caught our eye on the topics of evolution and ancient history and such. Will, give us some news. My first bit of news is actually still about the deep sea. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're not. We, we still haven't gone away from the, the, the I oceans. Have to ease out of it. I have to it's, ease. It's been a very wet well, summer. It's cold up here in the air. <laughs> and so I have to slowly leave the water. This is, and it actually does sync up with last episode with the Mesozoic Marine Revolution. This oh, is no. a Mesozoic fossil, a Cretaceous fossil of what is now the earliest evidence of deep-sea vertebrate activity. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Ooh. This is research by Andrea Balkin et al. in PNAS, and the article we'll be linking to in the blog post is a press release from the Faculty of Sciences of the University of Lisbon in SciTech Daily. So, vertebrates, 
bony animals, you know, fish and us land animals, uh, mammals and reptiles. And, and us derived fish. Yep, yep. Uh, are very prominent figures in deep sea communities today. But there is very little fossil evidence of deep sea vertebrates and basically no fossil evidence older than 50 million years. Oh, interesting. So it is fairly lacking, especially since almost surely there were vertebrates doing stuff down there before that, just from the animals we know existed. Deep sea, as we've discussed in the deep sea episode. That was episode 128. Is tough to study because not often is it that those sediments make it up to where we can see them, you know, to a, a shallow enough area that we can actually get a look at them. Much, many of the organisms that live down there are soft bodied. So, so they, they fossilize very well. And that sediment, that uh, uh, part of the Earth's surface is constantly being recycled yes. back into the Earth's crust. That gets devoured by the crust. So we we have a window of time that we could potentially see those things, and then it is consumed. Mm -hmm. So it has been tough to study, making these trace fossils very exciting. These are fish-feeding trace fossils. So not the fishes themselves, but traces on the sediment floor that seem to be from ancient fish that were looking for food. These They called them nanofossils. These are dating back to the lower Cretaceous, so about 130 million years old, which is significantly older than that 50 million. We've yeah. now 80 million years further back. <laughs> These were found from deep sea deposits in northwest Italy, abyssal plains, uh, turbinites from the Tethys Ocean, and would have been thousands of meters deep when they were made. They are probably to the, the layman eye, to my eye, Fairly simple structures, like not super characteristic at first glance. They called them bowl-shaped excavations. But there are some more notable things like tail traces moving oh, in the yeah. sediment. We've talked about that, that mm -hmm. fish will leave. There's a name for it that I can't think of right off the top of my head. But this swishing pattern that you see in the sediment when fish swim by. Exactly. And though it might not look like anything to some of us... To people who know what they're looking at, these are actually very characteristic feeding traces. Oh, cool. They match known feeding behaviors in fish today. They said they are basically identical to those produced by a number of bottom-feeding fish in the depths these days, either from them scratching at the surface with mouth parts or pumping water with suction or jets of water to expose prey in the sediment. Yeah, yeah. Creating those, those excavated bowls. They said they're reminiscent of a group of fish that includes the modern jelly nose fishes, which is one of the ones that's famous for being found in some of the deepest parts, and lizard fishes, which are also well known from deep water areas. Sound great to me. Right? Almost as good as those snakehead fish. <laughs> they said that the trace fossils they have suggest the activity of at least three fish species. Oh, okay. So there seem to be notable feeding behaviors going on. This is the earliest direct evidence of bottom living vertebrates in the deep sea and shows that they were exploiting a productive abyssal invertebrate community. Yeah, that there was a lot living there. Yes. Enough to support a bunch of different species of fish. Precisely. And this, they say, links up with interpretations of higher productivity in the deep sea uh, predating the Cretaceous. Which we talked a bit about yeah, in the last episode. Exactly. They said that between the late Jurassic and early Cretaceous, this does sync up with an interpretation of 
higher food accessibility in the deep sea, letting invertebrates become more numerous and successful, potentially driving and attracting vertebrate predators down to the depths. This also suggests that a what they call modern type deep sea ecosystem likely has been established as far back now as 130 million years. Mm-hmm. And they said that it could represent the last point of deep sea vertebrate you know, invasion or potentially the earliest. So we're not sure where in the vertebrates right. is moving into the deep. The end of vertebrates, mm-hmm. they, they, now they are established, or was this the first steps of it? And so this is going to be important for reanalyzing the, as they put, tempo, the timing of vertebrates reorganizing in the ocean and down into the depths. Yeah. It's really funny to compare different habitats in the fossil record because we have some habitats that are so extremely well represented, ponds and rivers and shorelines and such, Mm -hmm. to then have a type of habitat in the deep sea where here in the year 2023, we are reporting the first evidence of vertebrates. Yeah. The earliest evidence of vertebrates from that kind of habitat. That is a really, it's an exciting finding, but it also is a stark reminder of how scarce our our evidence in the fossil record is for those kinds of habitats deeper back in time. Yeah, exactly. That for body fossils, we only have the last fifty million years. Yeah, and even this isn't body. This exactly. is, these are trace fossils. Yeah. And so the and this shows that we are missing eighty million years of fossil evidence. Yeah, that was before those actual fish fossils from the depth. So like, there's a ton that was going on that we just haven't been at, we haven't seen yet. That is extremely cool. My first bit of news is not at all related to the subject of the last episode, but it is related to the subject of this episode. I've got news about plants, specifically about a particular lineage of plants that is mysterious and very rare uh, and very endangered. Ooh. It could use some defenses. It sure, it sure could use some defense. Actually, we're going to talk about that a little bit. This is research in BioArchive. As of right now, this is a preprint, so it has not been fully through peer review process. It is available to see on BioArchive by Dennis Stevenson et al. And in the blog post, we will link to an article on live science by Richard Pilardi. The plant in question is a conifer named the Wolemi pine. Wolemia nobilis a type of pine tree that is known from fossils across the southern continents, South America, Australia, New Zealand, and so, etc., ranging from the late Cretaceous, 90 million years ago, up until about 2 million years ago. And in the fossil record, it is known for being a, one of those species, one of those groups that looks very similar throughout time. Yeah. They didn't have a whole lot of morphological changes. Very consistent. It is also notable because in 1994, it was reported for the first time alive in Australia. (laughs) This is a tree that basically has the same story as the coelacanth. Yes. Where we had a fossil record of it, looked at the fossils and went, boy, they sure don't change very much over time. Thought they had gone extinct because we, they end in the fossil record and then we found some. Yes. And they still today look very similar to the fossils. So this is a classic example of a plant that has been dubbed a living fossil. Mm-hmm. Uh, for more details on that term, uh, episode 90, we did a whole episode about that. We also did a whole episode about coelacanths. That was episode 83. Yes. So, Wolemi pines, 
alive today. I was going to say alive and well, but they're not they're not doing great. Uh, <laughs> this is the how are you doing? Well, I'm above ground. Right. Where, where are they now? <laughs> These pine trees, this species is considered critically endangered. According to this paper, there are fewer than 60 known wild adults wow. in four small populations, and they happen to be in a country with ever-increasing threat of wildfires and such. Yep. So they are a very much uh, caught the attention of conservationists hoping to preserve them. This study reports the first full genome sequence of this species the record of the full genetic code. And they note a number of interesting things about the genome of these pines. For one, the genome is very large. Human genomes have about 3 billion base pairs. These plants have about 12 billion base pairs. But the researchers report overall low genetic diversity within the species, which is often what we see in species or populations with very small numbers. But also, uh, they reported signs within the genetic code of probably population bottlenecks yep. over the last 30,000 years or so, possibly related to certain climate shifts where the population shrunk dramatically and that lowered that genetic diversity. They also noted, and this is right in the title of the paper, a relatively high amount of transposons, which are often called jumping genes, which are sequences of the genome that have moved their position in the genome over time. Okay. Uh, We see these in a lot of species, where every now and then this gene used to be over on this chromosome, and now it has moved over here. These plants have a bunch of them, like an unusually high abundance of them, which the authors note could be a benefit because it helps to mix up your genetics, introduce more diversity, but can also be a harmful thing to have if the genetics that are being mixed up are harmful. Yes. If those are bad mutations that you're moving around. So it's possible that the trees have ended up in their current position as a combination of their own genetic quirks potentially working against them and going through some stressful times during the late Pleistocene that have led to the position that they are in now. Yeah. Uh, Just a little fun note, they did note in, I think, the abstract that some of these genetic sequences they noted uh, appear to have been incorporated into the plants via horizontal gene transfer from arthropods in the Jurassic. Huh. That some of these gene sequences are things they got from bugs. Weird. uh, Back during the Mesozoic. All right. You do you. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, speaking of their genetic quirks working against them, This study also provided insights into the susceptibility of these plants to disease. Mm. These trees are vulnerable to a type of water mold called Phytophthora, uh, which a number of different plants, like cultivars, I think, uh, can be troubled by. They found genes associated with resistance to this pathogen, Mm. but that the expression of those genes is being suppressed because of other features of the genome that favor leaf shape. Oh. So these trees have evolved these sort of unusual wide needles on the trees, and something about that genetic process interferes with the genes in the body that are meant to be protecting them against these pathogens. 
Weird. So they've also ended up with these weird genetic quirks that make it easier for them to fall victim to this particular pathogen. Yeah. So they've got got all these interesting genetic features that hint at how they ended up being this sort of diminished population that they are today after 100 million years of being successful here on Earth. But also hints in the genome about what's going on that makes them have a hard time, which could be very useful for conservationists. Yes, yes. Uh, This species is rare in the wild, but relatively common with gardeners and conservationists in captive situations. And understanding the this sort of genetic legacy of this really ancient lineage might be able to give give us the insights we need to help protect them today. Very interesting. It is it is always really intriguing to take a look at a a species that's in this you know somewhat uh, uh, unique situation because it's important to remember that it is not that you know, some life is just not as good at being life and that's why they go extinct because that's often what gets portrayed right you know we've talked about that before the the idea that the dinosaurs died out because they weren't up to snuff right but there is some th- reason or you know series of reasons why they want that there is a reason you know right. something did make them go extinct and sometimes it is that they the organism had struggles that others weren't having because of the way their genetics work or their particular biology works, that does happen. So being able to actually look at it and get some of those answers is really intriguing. Yeah. Like that, that, and that could definitely, I wonder how that will also affect looking at other, you know, plants in similar situations. Like, can we find that if we take a similar look? Yeah. Also, I called it Walemi Pine. Uh, as has happened in the past, I'm sure I will hear from the Australians in our audience telling me how it's supposed to be pronounced. Yes, yes. So feel free to reach out to us. You can find links in the episode description. Tell me that I'm wrong about Australian pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> Neat. Well, my next bit of news has nothing to do with any of our previous two. You're a trailblazer. Yeah. I want to talk about smart birds. All right. Birds the, live in trees. They can, yeah, absolutely. Probably not many in these trees just because there's not that many. There's not that many trees. Yeah, there's not room and for many. And birds eat fish, but probably not those no, fish. No, and not these birds. There. Not well, these. okay. These are songbirds. This is to meet our dinosaur Hey, <laughs> This is a research on birds that vocally learn their songs and indications that that might sync up with their problem solving and cognitive abilities in other categories. Mm. This is research by Jean-Nicolas O'Day et al. in Science, and the article we'll be linking to is is a press release from Rockefeller University, once again in SciTech Daily. So bird songs, extremely famous, well-known feature. Many birds, the song is instinctual. They are born with that in their DNA to know how to sing their kind of song. Right, like a Looney Tunes character that is born and then sings an opera. Exactly. Like they know that song instinctually. But many birds learn their songs, Mm -hmm. either from others of their species or they create their own song. There's many birds that are famous for pulling from other songs and other sounds to create their own complex songs. And these are often called vocal learners. There are a number of birds particularly famous for this. The European starling is one that is well known for creating a incredibly varied song with many different songs, sounds, and mimicry going on. And this is something that's studied quite often. Uh, Jarvis Labs 
study songbirds, and they have ways of defining vocal learners to assess what on the, where on the scale of vocal learner is this bird. Mm-hmm. And this includes things like the diversity of songs and calls in their repertoire, their ability to continue learning new vocalizations throughout their lifetime. You know, do they learn it once when they hit puberty and then they stop learning, or can they keep learning new songs? And what are their skills in mimicking other species? And complex vocal learners are fairly rare in animals. Certain birds, songbirds, parrots, and stuff like that. Evidently, hummingbirds made the list. Yeah. Hmm. And then famously in groups like us, elephants, whales, seals, bats also made this list, which is one I wasn't... That's cool. Way to go, bats. And, you know, this is how we learn language. This is that's vocal right. learning. You hear it, yes. you learn it, you put your own pieces together. You could continue to learn other languages, other mm-hmm. terms where we are constantly learning. <laughs> we learn new terms every episode of this podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> so complex vocal learning is is very interesting in among animals, but also has commonly been associated with higher cognitive abilities in other aspects of life. Right. That they are smarter. Yes, for exactly. Whatever that means. That if you are able to learn a language or songs or whatever it is you're learning vocally, you also seem to often have more complex problem-solving behavior and other cognitive skills that seem to kind of go hand in hand. This research attempted to see if that holds up. So they tested 214 individual birds from 23 species. 19 were wild-caught songbird species. Two were domesticated songbird species. And then there were two wild species that are non-vocal learners. Hmm. They evaluated their vocal learning abilities based on those criteria. They said three stood out, starlings, blue jays, and gray catbirds, which are relatives of mockingbirds. That those were the most highly complex in their vocal learning abilities. And, intriguingly, the only ones that could also mimic other species. Oh, cool. Which Odessa deemed... The epitome of vocal learning. Like, that's the peak, in their opinion. That you can steal sounds from others. Exactly. Then they tested how well do they handle different cognitive tests. Yeah. And they tested a few things. Problem solving, associative and reversal learning, and self-control. For problem solving, they challenged the bird to remove a lid, pierce foil, and pull a stick for a treat. Sure. So different, you know, classic, do this task and you will get a treat. And this is an unusual task. The associative and reversal learning is, was them testing whether the bird could learn to associate certain colors with a food. Okay. And mm-hmm. then to see how quickly they could adapt when the color was changed. Right. To undo that yes. learning. How quickly can you learn the new association, the new mm-hmm. pattern? And then self-control was it the marshmallow test? Uh, yeah, basically, this is, <laughs> they put a transparent barrier between them and food and see, and measured how long did it take them to stop going up against the barrier and go around. Gotcha. Had to pause, reassess, and find the solution. Yeah. Uh, that was their measure of self-control, which I thought, well, that's a very interesting one. Yeah. Not quite the same as the marshmallow test. <laughs> but, Google the marshmallow yes. test. But it's the same idea of, <laughs> there's a thing you want. To get it, you actually have to think about it for a second. If you're just panicking, you're not going to get your snack. (laughs) They then statistically analyzed the results to see what correlated, and they found strong correlations between problem solving and vocal learning abilities. Interesting. So for those pierce the foil, open the lid, pull the stick, the better they did there also tended to to be birds that were better at vocal learning or had higher vocal learning abilities. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Starling, Blue Jays, and Catbirds were not only the most advanced vocal learners, also were the best at solving these puzzles. But they did not find connection between the other cognitive tests with the association and the self-control with vocal learning. So it seems like it syncs up with problem solving, not necessarily other things we'd consider higher order thinking of self-control and associating things. They also found a correlation between vocal learning and brain size. Hmm. Relative brain size was higher in more complex vocal learners than in the other birds uh, with simpler vocal skills. Both of these, along with previous research uh, showing that vocal learners tend to be better at dancing to rhythmic beats, (laughs) all seem to show that there is a co-evolutionary connection between complex vocal learning abilities, problem-solving abilities, brain size, and potentially other behaviors as well. Yeah. So there might be something that is feeding back into the loop, one helping the other, or that it is similar parts of the brain that are needed for one are also helping you be better at the others. They said the next step is to look at through the brains because they have a pretty good idea of where vocal learning happens, but it's not quite as clear where problem solving happens. So seeing if they're happening in the same part of the brain would be a very clear answer as to why they're helping bolstering one another. This is really interesting because it, it can feel very obvious to say, well, yeah, the better you are at learning, the better you are at problem solving, the bigger your brain is. Like, obviously, those all feel like they go together. Mm-hmm. But what's super cool about this is that there are other signs of cognitive function, other signs of intelligence, as it were, that don't very clearly line up with these, which is a really cool finding to see because, as we've mentioned before on the podcast, it is is never as simple as just saying, yes, all the smart things are smart things. Yes. That big brains don't necessarily correlate with certain cognitive functions. Or you might be good at doing this thing, but that doesn't necessarily line up with being good at doing this other thing. And the idea that those different functions rely on different parts of the brain or different structural evolution in the brain is a really interesting thing to try to unpack. How do different cognitive functions evolve? Which ones are linked with each other and which ones actually are not in that umbrella of this type of intelligence? Well, and it's always important to test these things out because just because an animal can solve a complex problem of learning a new vocal skill doesn't mean they're doing it by thinking the way we would do that. Right. Uh, The example I always think of is ants. Ants can solve incredibly complex problems, but they're not doing it by quote unquote thinking. Right. It is a very different, (laughs) much more binary process for how they solve things as a group than how we would solve things as a human. Right. Whereas these birds are doing the Sherlock thing. Exactly. So (laughs) they're actually taking in the information the way we might uh, relate more to. Exactly. So you actually do have to test out, are you thinking the way we think or are you doing something alien? Well, our last bit of news here is not about birds. It is about plants again, a bit. Okay. But it is also about a species doing really smart stuff. Uh, But the species is human, so it's less surprisingly (laughs) impressive. Good job, us. Uh, But this is about plant technology uh, in ancient humans. I like that term. This is research published in the journal PLOS One by Hermine Joffler et al., and we will link to yet another press release on SciTech Daily. We got a lot of those this time. Uh, this press release is published through 
uh, plus one, which means somebody wrote it. And I, I actually do happen to know who wrote this press release because <laughs> it was me. <laughs> this research focuses on the use of tools in earlier human cultures. When we talk about tool use in the archaeological record, in the, the historical record, we are typically talking about things made of stone or sometimes bone, things like that. Stuff that preserves really well in the geologic record. But plants are extremely commonly used as tools, as materials, especially for stuff like textiles or cords, like strings and rope and stuff. But they can be a lot harder to study because plants don't tend to preserve quite as well in the geologic record, especially in certain parts of the world relevant to this study, like the tropics. Mm-hmm. So we don't actually have a lot of direct evidence of the history of plant technology throughout uh, ancient human communities. This research presents some evidence of plant technology. This comes from a place called Tabon Cave in the Philippines. This cave is known for preserving thousands of tools from ancient humans. Also, there's bones in there. It sounds like there's all sorts of really cool stuff dating back to over 40,000 years ago, so quite a ways back. This study examined, was actually looking at the stone tools, examining microscopic patterns of wear on the tools to see if we could, they could interpret how the tools were being used. Yeah. The same way that we do with teeth in the, the paleontological record, is we study the wear on teeth to see what were you doing with these teeth. Modern communities in this region, the Philippines, Southeast Asia, use tools to strip plants. They will do this on plants like bamboo and palm to turn the rigid stems of those plants into flexible fibers Mm -hmm. that they can then use for making ropes or weaving or all sorts of different things that you might want to use a cord for. If you want a good visual of that, go look up Primitive Technologies on YouTube Mm -hmm. and watch one of his rope making videos and you'll see exactly what we're talking about. Yes, (laughs) because those are plant fibers. Yes. Uh, You are using your tools to reduce the plant down to a set of fibers you can then use for tying up stuff. Yep, yep. For part of this study... They experimented with the fiber techniques used by modern communities in the in that region. They observed what the technique that people still to this day use to do this, replicated it on modern tools, and then examined what that does to the tools. Yes. What kind of way, what kind of striations and scarring and stuff at a microscopic level are being left on the tools. Then they compared that to some of the tools from this cave. They examined about 40, I think it said 43 tools, and on three of them found markings that match the same kind of markings we see on tools today that are used to strip plants in this way. This is really cool because not only is it indirect evidence of plant technology, people doing this kind of thing to plants, these tools are between somewhere between 39 and 33,000 years old. Yeah. Which makes them, the authors say, to our knowledge, the oldest evidence of plant technology in Southeast Asia, alongside one other site of a similar age that has some evidence for something similar. If I remember right, they mentioned that the oldest direct evidence for plant technology is something like 8,000 years old. <laughs> so this is a way extension of this evidence of this kind of technology. 
This means all sorts of cool stuff about these ancient cultures. Number one, it means that they had the possibility of using fiber, of making mm-hmm. ropes and stuff, which can be really handy for traps, for weapons, for homes, for boats, mm-hmm. uh, they mentioned, baskets, all sorts of different things. Also, they noted that this contributes to growing evidence that fiber technology was really important in late Pleistocene communities, that this is something that was a key part of human communities during those times. And this was a really cool note that they made in the paper, that if these tools were being used for the same technique that we still see today in modern communities in the Philippines, this could potentially be an uninterrupted tradition that has been around for at least almost 40,000 years. But this could be, this has been passed down ever since then, which is an extremely cool thought to consider for communities in this region. Yeah. Uh, And on top of all that, the authors note, this paper demonstrates a new technique for finding this kind of evidence. And they actually made a note, I think, that the the plant technology is hidden Mm -hmm. it is invisible and the signs that are being uncovered here are microscopic who knows how many tools there are that we have already found that might have this kind of evidence that we could from here go on to investigate awesome it's very very cool well, while we're on the note of animals chopping up plant fibers, attacking, attacking plants, attacking and tearing apart plants, mutilating plants, it sure does make one wonder, uh, what or what about the plant side how, of this stuff? How could an innocent plant protect themselves <laughs> in such a situation? From horrible things like humans and cows and <laughs> rock-wielding apes. <laughs> so... After the break, we will get into our main discussion, which means that after our short musical interlude, there will be a third voice joining us. Uh, We will be joined by Allie to talk about the diversity and deep history of plant defenses. Hello, Allie. Hello, David. Welcome back. Thank you, as always, so much for being here. We love having you on the podcast. I'm thrilled to be here, obviously. (laughs) It's going to be a good one. Hey, before we get into talking about plants and stuff, uh, please introduce yourself for anyone who hasn't heard the dozen other times that you've been on our podcast. It's weird to me that 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 it's actually like a dozen times. So hello, my name is Dr. Allie Baumgartner, and I am a paleobotanist who moonlights, not moonlights, it's during the day, as a uh, collections manager of vascular plants at the University of Michigan Herbarium. So I am a plant librarian, and it's great. (laughs) You are also the go-to plant person of the Common Descent podcast. Yes, this is true. I, if you ever listen to the uh, uh, boin- bonus noise, I do get mentioned by name as the plant person. And That's true. I feel very famous. Yes. <laughs> You've also become the go-to plant person for a bunch of other pro- uh, places and people. This is true. It's kind of surprising to me. So I will be in an upcoming uh, series on PBS jointly with the BBC that is all about ancient earth. Specifically, I will be on the episode uh, that talks all about plants. 
That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and when does that happen? Sometime in early October. Check your local listings. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Allie, you are here today uh, for an episode entitled Plant Defenses. So we're going to be talking about all the ways that plants defend themselves. Uh, funnily enough, by sheer coincidence of choosing episode topics, two episodes after our episode about herbivory, uh, which does lead nicely into uh, the question that I'm going to start you off with. What's a plant defense and why are plants defending themselves? <laughs> I recently finished listening to the herbivory uh, episode and thought, oh, this is perfect. <laughs> um, so plants have to defend themselves because they're very tasty and everybody wants to eat them. Everyone wants a piece. Exactly. So plants are primary producers. So they are the interface between the sun and everybody else. They make the sun into energy. And so in order for everybody else to get that energy, you got to go through the plants. So I'll be talking today about a couple of different categories. They're so arbitrary, but I will be using them. So basically... Whether or not something is an herbivore or a parasite slash pathogen is basically based on the size. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So if it is like a straight up, we call it an animal. So this includes, you know, your mammals and friends and all the way down into insects and other invertebrates. Those are herbivores. If you're talking about microbes, those are going to be primarily I'll be referring to them as pathogens. Okay, so plants don't have immune systems in like the animal sense of the word. So they have to do things a little bit diff uh, differently in order to protect themselves. So, you know, if you have an infection, you'll have some sort of immune, immune response. You'll have, you know, white blood cells or something similar if you're a different kind of animal um, to react to this intruder. Plants do things a little bit differently, and I love them for it. <laughs> so generally speaking, the types of defenses that plants have can be put into the category of continuous or constitutive or inducible. So it's exactly what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Continuous or constitutive means that they that's just part of you. They happen continuously. It's part of your constitution. It's just who you are versus inducible are induced. That means you make them happen when it is necessary something triggers exactly so similar to our immune system has parts of it things that our immune system does when a pathogen shows up but yes outside of that we're not worrying about it yes exactly in general the induced ones are metabolically expensive it takes a lot of proteins or energy it takes a lot for the plant to, to do that so they tend to only use them when it is strictly necessary yeah makes sense so in general, some trends that we see in plant uh, defenses, tropical plants tend to have more defenses than their temperate counterparts, but also more herbivory. Because if you're that tasty and, and there's just so many things to eat you, it's bound to happen. And so for this reason, plants can't always prevent herbivory. Like, you know, it's not possible to have 0% herbivory all of it. Like, that's not a reasonable goal. And so instead, defenses can kind of go through towards one of three different categories. And sometimes they kind of overlap. Deterrence, resistance, and tolerance. So, and you can kind of 
fit into multiple of those categories. These aren't real boxes. They're just for humans. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So deterrent traits are usually continuous or constitutive. They're just part of the plant because they are trying to prevent them from being eaten at all. So that can be like colors that are a deterrent, uh, odors, textures. So like if it's hairy, that might not feel good in your mouth. Mm -hmm. Or it can be things that like there is an absence of stimuli that makes it look like it would be appealing to eat. So that's deterrence. Resistance are the things that can injure or kill um, the herbivore or slow its development or reproduction. So these are the ones that like, you fooled around, now you're going to find out. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last one is tolerance. So these are basically the traits that help them not prevent herbivory, but basically compensate for the damage that results from herbivory. So this can be changes in like photosynthetic rate, um, how much they're growing, when they are reproducing or flowering, morphological changes, things like that. Yeah. That's really, it's really interesting to think that the sort of evolutionary philosophy, as it were, of plants is we're going to get hurt Mm -hmm. and we're going to get eaten and everybody wants to eat us. So our defenses are going to have to work both before and after that happens. Well, and it, and it's neat that it's very similar to the way like we humans form defenses of like you have walls, which are just passive defenses. And then you also have the people you man the walls with that react to mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not always doing something, but they do something when something happens. Right. So the wall is constitutive mm-hmm. and then the people guarding you are induced. Exactly. <laughs> it's the same thing. Cool. So broadly speaking, um, if I kind of sum up the types of defenses we see against macro herbivores versus pathogens. So one of the most important steps in mitigating herbivory is being able to detect herbivory. <laughs> oh yeah, that's yeah. Good. That, that you're being eaten. Yes, yes. I am being eaten now. And something yes. needs to be done about it. But you, you need to be able to recognize like this isn't like the plant needs to be able to recognize the difference between herbivory and general in- injury. Yes. Right? Like getting so, stepped on or something. Just, like stepped on, a windstorm, struck by lightning. I don't know. But like, because like you said, they can't move. They're stuck there. <laughs> so it's going to happen. So um, it's really interesting. Plants are especially good at detecting insect herbivory. Hmm. Um, and it's i read this so many times like i didn't believe it at first and i kept reading i'm like i think apparently this is a thing the way that they can tell the difference between general wounding and insect herbivory is compounds in insect saliva okay yeah 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 makes sense it makes sense but like i've also just never thought of insects having saliva right now you get to sleep thinking about that yeah yes just caterpillar drool what's what's wrong with that Well, it's really, it's a real struggle, I would imagine, for a group of organisms, plants, without a nervous system, Mm -hmm. the way that we think of it. Because I know if I get bitten, I've got a whole system in place to tell me that that's what's going on. Yes! Uh, But plants don't have that same system. It's it's not a conversation you usually have to have about an organism. Am I being eaten Uh, right now? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like, how how can you tell when something bad's happening to you? Could you explain? Yes, exactly. It's very different with them. So in general, uh, anti-herbivore defenses generally come down to go away or die. 
(laughs) (laughs) Um, or slow them down. And so oftentimes the like the primary types of defenses you'll see are both or either structural or chemical. And I'll get into exactly what those are later. When it comes to micro predator predators, so our parasites and pathogens, again, the plant needs to be able to recognize that this is happening. And this is happening at a fundamentally different scale than the other herbivory because you're looking at very short distances, like between cells that the plant needs to like. So the plant needs to be able to know someone is in my cells (laughs) trying to eat me from the inside, which is horrifying when you put it Uh that way. Yep. That, I mean, that's that's why bacterial infections, once I actually learned what they were, it was like, oh, it was, so that's why my throat hurts. It's being torn apart <laughs> yeah. cell by cell. Yes. Horrifying. Continue. Yes. Exactly. So, um, so phytopathogens, so plant pathogens, are less mobile than herbivores. They can't, mm-hmm. right? We're working at a cellular level. So the responses are at a cellular cellular level. One of the best ways that a plant can deal with that is by structural reinforcement. So like they can literally thicken their cell walls, um, be like, no, keep out. Shields the full. Exactly. Yeah. Or inducing particular types of toxins or by killing the cell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, apoptosis. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, um, I remember high school. <laughs> so that's what's called a hypersensitive response. So if you've ever seen a a, a leaf where most of the leaf is fine, and then like one corner of it is absolutely wilting, that's what's happening. That is the site of an infection, yeah. and the plant is um, killing off the cells around it to isolate the infection. So that is one of the most effective methods to deal with pathogens. It's a, it's gotcha. a salt the earth. It's just, yeah, that's we're exactly going to kill it. everything so that you can't move forward. Uh, it's yes. like a, a self-induced amputation. Yeah. Yes. Like this whole section we're just giving up on. Yep. And we're getting rid of it so it can't yep. endanger the rest of the body. Exactly. Exactly. Very Great. cool. Uh, Allie, I, I'm already... Uh, learning that this is a much more nuanced and complicated topic than I thought it was when we picked this episode topic. You mentioned a handful of different categories of defense types. I myself am far more familiar with the structural side of the sort of the physical defenses. And I suspect that when the time comes for us to talk about the fossil record, that's mostly what we're going to be talking about. Yes. So before we do that, uh, let's talk about the chemical stuff. Absolutely. So to preface, I now I've listened to so many episodes and y'all have said so many times. So this is a really big topic and we can't cover everything. So if I don't cover your favorite X, Y, Z, let us know. And that could be another episode. That's what's happening right here. This is a huge topic. I am so sorry if I don't cover your favorite plant defense. Let us know. And Give me a dozen more things to talk about. Right, you right. can you can message Allie on the internet at a link that we will include in the episode description. And you or can you can do uh, topic suggestions on your website. Oh, hey, yeah, there's a link in the episode description for the form on our website that you can suggest topic. Submit your request now for more chemical plant defenses. <laughs> Whatever we don't talk exactly. about. Exactly. Okay, so... Let's talk chemical defenses. There are layers to this. First of all, 
when we're talking about chemical compounds, so proteins, whatever, made by plants, they come in two categories, primary metabolites and secondary metabolites. Okay. Right? That's it. We're just, we're just chopping this up into bite-sized pieces. So primary metabolites, I'm not going to be talking about uh, because those are the ones produced by the plant specifically for growth, development, or reproduction. Okay. Yeah. Everything else (laughs) is a secondary metabolite. And they are often used for plant defenses. They can be repurposed to work for plant defenses. And like I mentioned at the beginning, they are metabolically expensive because you are making things that aren't going towards your growth, development, or reproduction. Like, it better be worth it. Mm -hmm. So uh, generally speaking, again, I'm going to break it down into another category. There are three types. There are your terpenoids, your phenolics, and your alkaloids. (laughs) I recognize that. A little bit of those terms. I think Optimus Prime had to fight some of those <laughs> yeah. in one of the... <laughs> I will not be going deep into the weeds, into the chemistry. I could. Some of you would like it. I would not. But let's not. Yeah. Let's, let's, let, let's submit not. Your, submit your request now for deep in the weeds about chemistry. <laughs> yes. Future problem. Uh, so the first category are the terpenoids. This is the biggest category of the secondary metabolites used in plant defenses. And you're probably familiar with what they do so these are a wide variety so anything with like an essential oil in it anything if you can smell it it's probably a terpenoid yes that's the reference that i've heard is that the smelling that the sense of plants and everything yes exactly so turpentine is a terpenoid unsurprisingly it is in the name um but like the, the essential oils in mint, in basil, in oregano, rose, like all of those, that is, you can think terpenoids for that. But they can also have like other types of things too. Cardiac glycosides in digitalis, the foxglove, which will stop your heart in vertebrates. Mm-hmm. It's super toxic to us. So that is a terpenoid. Or my favorite terpenoid, which is why I have to mention it, are the phytoecdysones, which they mimic insect molting hormones. And basically, they make insects develop to death. Wow. Yeah. Spinach. Spinach can release phytoecdysones. That's what's happening to Popeye. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it all makes sense. He's going through several instars instantly. Yeah. Yeah. So it induces like an over, it it makes me think of cancer. Like it's it's inducing the body to do something naturally, but too much or at the wrong time or in the wrong sequence. That's plants are are scary. This is the the plants are scary episode. This is the plants are scary episode. (laughs) Like I genuinely have parts in here where I was like, I'm not that kind of doctor, but as a botanist, be careful. Mm -hmm. Um, So we'll get get to this. Please do not use this podcast as medical advice. But (laughs) But probably avoid most of this. But do (laughs) think of it as medical. It's probably a good idea. Uh, If you don't know what it is, don't put it in your mouth. That's great botanical advice in general. That's that's Um, good advice in general all the time. Yes, it is. Um, (laughs) So the last type of terpenoid I want to talk about are VOCs. So volatile organic compounds. So that is... That's what makes it, uh, they're volatile, they're organic compounds, so they are being released into the air. You can smell them. 
Like when you think about plants making smells, like apart from like the flowers, like when you talk about the smell of fresh cut grass, this is the smell of fresh cut grass. Yep, yep, yep. So these volatiles, these VOCs are released when one part of the plant is being fed on, another part of the plant will release these chemicals in order to signal to other plants that there is a threat in the area so they can also produce uh, defenses. In addition, they can also either act as a deterrent to the thing eating them or summon the predator of the thing yes. eating them, yeah. which yep, is yep. my favorite. That, that's That's hardcore. I, right? So my favorite example of this is that, like, you know, if wheat is attacked by aphids, then it'll, you know, the wheat will uh, repel the aphids with the, the VOCs. But the better one is when cotton plants are attacked by caterpillars, the VOCs will attract predatory wasps. Yep. <gasps> oh, which is the worst predator uh-huh. to show up for the caterpillars. That's, that's the one I was aware of, is that yeah. the parasitoid wasps will yeah, show yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And now a new horror movie begins. Yes. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. You fooled around and now you're going to find out. <laughs> yeah. Whoever wins, we lose. Right. Well, and, and it also makes total sense with plants because like you said, they can't run away. So it really is one of those of like, you either play softball and get chewed on mm-hmm. or you play hardball and try to save your... So like plants yeah. don't really have many other options. You either allow it to happen or you get nasty. Yes. Yes, I love plants. They are. I love this episode because it gets to be like, you underestimated us. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, so the next category are the phenolics. So again, you've probably heard of mo- many of these. So tannins are a phenolic. So they are super toxic to insects. They will bind to their salivary proteins so they can't gain weight and they die. Wow. It starves them out. Basically. So, oh. the, and the wild thing is we can, we can handle amounts of tannins. So tannins are present in things like young uh, red wine. They're present in tea. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the astringent, like bitter taste. Yes. Lignin, which is what is one of the key ingredients of making wood is a phenolic. It's ind- indigestible and it's a great physical barrier. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we did a whole bunch of talking about that in episode 173 about herbivory. It's yes, one did. of the things. I don't know if we mentioned lignin by name, but it's one of the things that makes it so hard to digest plants. It's why you yes. need those micro buddies. Yes. Yes, exactly. So this is a, I'm not a medical doctor, but consult your medical doctor. Furanacumarins are activated by UV light, can be highly toxic um, to vertebrates and invertebrates due to their integration into DNA, which contributes to rapid cell death. This is found in grapefruit juice, and this is why you can't have grapefruit juice with many medications. Oh. Yeah. So what happens wow. is, great. yeah, so grapefruit juice has these furanocumarins, and it can greatly increase the absorption of certain drugs. So your dosage may be something, but you are getting a much higher amount. And you'll see these warnings on on pill bottles. So like, be aware that the grapefruit is kind of trying to kill you. So just like, take that in consideration. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Right? That's what I'm saying. Like, plants are really dangerous. Please be careful, y'all. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and then finally, the last of the main categories of the chemical compounds are the alkaloids. So they are, in general, bitter tasting nitrogen based compounds. Um, and you have heard of so many of them caffeine, cocaine, capsaicin, morphine, nicotine, like all the really like exciting compounds that, you know, <laughs> the plants are trying to get us not to eat it. And we're like, ooh. More, please. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. So, like, for example, caffeine is super toxic to insects yeah, uh, yeah. and fungi. And in high com concentrations, it can inhibit the germination of other seeds. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it works against plants, too. Yeah. And then which, which there are plants that feed on plants. Yes. Yes. Uh, which we've mentioned before. So that's also <laughs> important. Not only do plants feed on each other, but also they are just jerks to each other chemically. Yep. 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 Makes sense. Well, this one, that plant's blocking my light, and I kind of yeah. need that to live. Yeah, yeah exactly. I can't risk that you might hurt me. Also, I don't like you, yes. so <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna do yes, this <laughs> exactly. And then uh, capsaicin, which is another famous one that makes chili peppers hot. I learned mm -hmm. that the botanical term for that is pungency. Oh, which that, I feel like undersells it. I was about to say a little bit. I feel like if I described a meal that way it would not prepare anyone for what they were about right. to taste. <laughs> yes. I would not use pungent to describe something being hot and spicy, but hey, that's, you know, that's what we call it. So they are antifungal and anti-mammal. <laughs> yeah, they sure but are. They're anti-mammal. Nice try. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not here for it. <laughs> but like birds it. are not bothered. So the really spicy things often are um, dispersed by birds. So those are the... Those are the chemical defenses that people are probably like familiar with. Those are the ones that I was taught in school. Mm -hmm. I recently learned that there is another category. So it's either a subcategory or a, you know, a additional category of protein and enzyme defenses. So they are more expensive than secondary metabolites. So okay. they are always induced. Yeah. And they can be used on everything from fungi to bacteria to nematodes, invertebrates to, in, to invertebrates to vertebrates, everybody. Everybody can be affected by these. So they are often grouped into what's called defensins. So they are proteins that display broad antimicrobial activity. Um, they are present in most plants. They are most common in seeds, but you can find them kind of in all over, you know, um, all over the plant. I'm going to talk about two of them specifically. So they can inhibit growth in fungi and bacteria or inhibit digestive proteins in, uh, in herbivores. Uh -huh. So the first one is ricin. Oh, I've heard of that. Oh, yeah. Ricin is it found in castor beans. It inhibits protein synthesis. It is highly toxic. Um, the lethal dose in humans is... 0 0.2 milligrams, right? This this messes not you up. a lot up. of milligrams. That's not, that's not many. No. I recently learned about its friend, Abrin. Abrin is found in the rosary pea. I'll explain what that is in a second after I tell you why this is scary. So it does what ricin does, only better. <laughs> so it messes with DNA transcription like a machine. So it inhibits this protein synthesis it is similar to ricin in the way that it does this, but it is more toxic by almost two orders of magnitude. But 
Yes. And here's why this is uh, interesting. This has come up in my job fairly recently. So Abrin is used to make pretty beads. Or so the rosary pea, the, the beans, the peas of this are made to make pretty beads or poison. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that seems to often be the case. That it's yes. like this thing is really pretty, or we kill people with it. Right. So with most of these things, uh, they're found in the seeds. If the seed coat is not pierced, you're it's not necessarily gonna lethal you. If the seed coat is pierced, then you're in trouble. It will very readily be absorbed. And if you are making a bead out of it. That's gonna you you have to stick a hole in it. So mm-hmm. the reason this came up in my in my world is because in the anthropology museum here, one of the collections managers came across a mask, like a full headdress sort of mask, decorated with these. Mm-hmm. And they're these beautiful red beads. And there was this little envelope that said, read me. And inside the envelope, there was this like old school typewriter typed up, like basically it's like. The government says we have to put a note in here that says this is super toxic. So, like, be careful or something. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, the even the dust can be intoxic if uh, can be toxic if inhaled. So, like, the collections manager wore like PPE and like a ventilator and the whole thing and put it in a box with like much better um, documentation. A month later, so I have a display in my office that shows different types of beans and like what they look like. And one of them was bright red. And a grad student came in and she's like, oh, those are, I have some of those. I found them in Florida. I was like, oh, I think I know what those are. Let me double check. Yes, they are. So these grow in Florida uh, invasively. And she had collected some of these beans and was going to make beads out of them. And I was like, actually, maybe don't do that. Mm-hmm. So um <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so knowing about plants uh, saved a person. Yes, exactly. So genuinely uh, saved a life. So like uh, moral of the story with the chemical defenses of plants is, oh my goodness, if you don't know what it is, please don't put it in your mouth. And the words mm-hmm. of Alexis Nicole, the black forager, please don't die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Well, it, what's really interesting, I have several thoughts. One of them is, uh, as we were discussing before, uh, uh, every episode's blog post has, if you liked this episode, you will enjoy these other episodes. And very early in this discussion, I decided that one of those other related episodes is going to be episode 97, which was not about ichthyosaurs, but it was about poison and venom. Yep. yep. Because mm-hmm. this is an extremely overlapping topic yep. of organisms producing nasty compounds to mess with the biological functioning of other organisms. Well, and like it's with those last two examples, like fundamental I'm turning off your programming. I'm not <laughs> letting your DNA do what it's supposed to do. Yeah. Like that's not just like, "Ooh, I'm not going to let your oxygen move around." It's like, <laughs> "No, no." I'm turning you off. Yeah. I'm going yeah. to the source code and I'm turning you <laughs> off. <laughs> well, and it's also really, uh, it's a it's a nice reminder of a not very nice thing that we've got, there are all these famous toxins and poisons in sort of human history, you know, ricin and these other ones that you've mentioned. And it's a good reminder that a lot of the time, this isn't some thing that 
people cooked up in like their alchemical yeah. dealings back in medieval times mm-hmm. or whatever. This is a thing that just plants made this mm-hmm. for this purpose to stop things from eating them. And we conveniently went, oh, that's cool. I can put that in somebody's tea. Well, you know, that works real to, good. To stage a coup, right? Whatever yeah. you want to do. That's just, we didn't put effort into that. That's just, plants already made that 100%. Well, and it's it's wild too, because like, it's it's kind of how like at the core of like toxicology, it's like, you know, the dose makes the poison, right? So like so many of these terrifying things that I mentioned are also used medicinally. Mm-hmm. So like digitalis, a digitoxin will stop your heart if you eat some foxglove, but it's also used medicinally um, to you know manage your heart. And like you have caffeine in there, right? Like many humans take that medicinally. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, capsaicin. We, there are so many humans who are like, yes, ramp it up to 11 we will breed them to be the spiciest things on the planet and it's it's fascinating that we basically are like yes this is either going to be like recreational and fun for humans or like sorry you're dead now yeah yeah well it makes me think of in the herbivory episode we talked about the fact that like digesting meat is simple because we already have stuff for breaking down Right, our, 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 our tissues. Our bodies are full of enzymes and yeah. proteins that mm-hmm. break down meat. And that's what we're made of. The fact that medical and immune stuff is often that yeah. way of like, a lot of times your immune response is, okay, we're going to start killing cells. Some of them are going to be ours, but hopefully most of them are the bacteria. And yes. the fact that medical stuff also is that way. And yeah, it's it's a very interesting that the, the job it's doing is not inherently bad unless you have too much. Well, and I didn't, initially get into this but there's also fun you know proteins and enzymes that enzymes that break down proteins so like chitinase like they have compounds to literally break down like fungal fungal cells Mm -hmm. so like terrifying and and we did a whole episode uh episode 105 about carnivorous plants which are plants that have taken some of these compounds that are able to break down tissues, able to break down things like chitin, which is what insects are made of, mm-hmm. uh, and turned it to a new use of yes. breaking them down to then uh, absorb all those great nutrients that come out. Yeah. It's really, it's not at all surprising that plants have put so much of their energy into developing defensive things that are chemical. Because like we, like we keep repeating, plants can't move, plants can't fight. <laughs> Like plants don't get teeth and claws and stuff the way that animals do. So all these different chemical approaches to deterring herbivores or killing off infections of fungus or bacteria or whatever are essential. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I just uh, I just had a thought to build on what you were saying, uh, Will. It's like, oh, yeah, we had to have we had to you know start breaking down meat. I could just think of plants being like, yeah, that's cute. I've been Mm -hmm. able to do that for a while. (laughs) (laughs) also you made the note about plants releasing compounds to either deter right the idea Mm -hmm. that you start eating this and now it's gross so you have to you have to leave but the thought of plants turning on a little siren to call the wasps in yes just is one more way that plants have exploited the mobility of animals Mm -hmm. yes not just for dispersing seeds and stuff Mm -hmm. but like hey i can't kill this caterpillar but there are some things around here that can get the job done. Yep. Yeah. And we're just going to take advantage of that. 
Yeah. And then you have things that kind of like bridge that gap too of like domatia, which are like the little homes for insects that plants will make so that they have like, they can really quickly summon the troops and be like, hey, I give you a house. Can you come take care of this? Mm-hmm. That Yeah, you constructed a barracks on site. Yep. Yes. So that when you need to call the troops, yes. they can go take out the, the, the offenders. Well, it's like exactly. when we talked in the ants episode, dedicated ant eaters are actually fairly rare because no one wants to mess with ants. And yes. plants went, ooh, that's great. <laughs> Why don't you... I'll have some of that. Come live with me. <laughs> yes. We're going to be friends now. Well, as delightful as it has been to be fascinated and horrified by the chemical and protein defenses of plants... There's a whole other category we've alluded to, which is physical defenses. And I'm sure that uh, many of our listeners, like me this whole time, have been thinking of physical plant defenses mm-hmm. that we already know about. After the break, uh, well, let's have you tell us about physical stuff. Of course. Allie, you've told us about the horrifying ways that plants use chemicals to defend themselves. Please tell us about the horrifying ways that plants use not chemicals to defend themselves. I would love to. So <laughs> to spice things up a little bit, I I have organized this in terms of increasing lethality. <laughs> fantastic (laughs) so well as we go through this i will let you know what the deterrent level is Uh, you're gonna it's like a it's like the scoville scale but it's for physical stuff right yes i I, i'm very proud of this (laughs) okay so we're talking deterrent level deterrent so these are the pre-herbivory defenses so this is probably where a lot of the things that people are familiar with in terms of physical uh, defenses, that's this is the category they're in. So this is going to be your modified tissues, parentheses, weapons. So your thorns, which are modified branches. So this is what you see in like honey locust or acacia. These are big and beefy and mean business, and I love them so much. Your second category are your spines. So these are modified leaves or parts of leaves, like stipules. And this is what you see on cacti. So Mm -hmm. cacti have spines. Mm -hmm. And then finally, you have the prickles. My favorite. (laughs) I'm so glad you have a favorite. (laughs) My favorite's the thorns. I'll take spines. Spines are pretty cool. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll speak for the spines. Collect the whole set. So prickles are modified epidermis. And that's what roses have. So... If you've, you've taken a botany class in the like last 20 years, you have probably heard the joke of every rose has its prickle because mm-hmm. roses don't have thorns. Yep. Gotcha. Yep. Yep. I we, like prickles on I, because of the, the rose example, because they, they pop off. They, they are, yes. they're a different, they're very notable, different, weird structure. And I like it. Yeah. No, they're, they're, they're great. I do. Lo- I love, I do love the weapons, like physical defense. I like chemical defenses, but I love the physical defenses. And these are things that very obviously you try to bite the plant and you get a whole bunch of sharp stuff in mm-hmm. your face. Well, yeah. And it's, it's so similar to a lot of animal defenses of like, I'm going to put un- unpalatable uh, hurdy parts on me so that hopefully you won't bite me. Yes, ex- that's exactly it. Um, so they'll also do 
like just have straight up barriers. So this is where, you know, the cell wall, the fact that plants have cell walls um, is a barrier to pathogens. Um, cuticle, which is the waxy layer that you'll get on top of leaves or bark. <laughs> so bark is made of cellulose and lignin, both of which are incredibly difficult to digest. So like, you're not going to want to chew on that. Mm-hmm. And then finally is move the tasty bits away from herbivores. Uh, <laughs> so this can be things like rapid plant movement. So where they actually like close up their leaves, like ah, ah, you don't get to eat that. Small leaves will expand, will expand faster than large leaves. And they're, they'll therefore lower their rates of herbivory because they minimize the juvenile window which is when they are most vulnerable because baby leaves are tasty, like baby spinach, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so they will grow faster to prevent uh, this herbivory from happening when they're you know, sensitive. Some plants have extra floral nectaries. So that is nectar, not in a flower. Okay. <laughs> uh, and it is a way for plants to either you know distract them from hey don't don't go over there or they'll use extra floral nectaries to attract things that will come eat the uh the invaders and then my favorite example is just having again leaves and weird like in places that makes them make them hard to eat so pseudopanix crassifolius is a tree from new zealand so you already know it's going to be kind of weird that up until a certain height, the le- so the leaves are pretty high up and they're very strap-like and kind of leathery, like no good for eating. And then once you get higher, then they start to have tastier sort of leaves, but nobody mm-hmm. can reach them. So yeah. if you physically get them out of the way, nobody's going to eat it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that was deterrent level deterrent. Category zero. <laughs> now we're up into what I have physical herbivory punishments <laughs> so we are now into deterrent level discomfort this is this is the finding out portion yes yes this is the finding out okay so we have deterrent level discomfort so in this we have different types of idioblasts so these are that means crazy cells so these are a kind of a broad category of cells that are doing things like their job is just don't eat me so one example are sclerids so sclerids are these kind of like weird shaped cells they're regularly shaped cells with really thick cell walls so they're they're not fun to chew this is what gives pears that texture I hate the way pears feel like this works on me I don't eat pears because of that like sandy texture it's the sclerids inside I was about to say I I think a bunch of people just felt incredibly validated because I've (laughs) I've met tons of people who are like no I I don't like it and it's like you're not supposed to like it you're supposed to not like it the plant is doing its job (laughs) and then similarly to that are phytoliths so I mentioned that in the grass episode that's your line oh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's episode 38 the reason i didn't jump in and say the episode number is because there was a news we just recently talked about yeah yep. talked about phytoliths and i was trying to remember what that was mm-hmm. yeah we did a grass episode that was episode 38 that was the first episode Allie was in. this yeah. is true 
Uh, so in case you haven't listened to that, or it's been a hot second, because it has been a hot second, mm-hmm. uh, phytoliths are literally, it means leaf rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're silica cells. They're often found in, associated with grasses and sedges. They can fa- be found in a lot of things, but they are, again, a deterrent. Like, it doesn't feel nice to chew on grass. Also, PSA, don't chew on grass. You, we, do, we don't have the teeth for that. Don't do that. Don't chew on grass. This is medical, probably not a good idea. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So we are now on to deterrent level, non-lethal injury. <laughs> so... Now we're getting into the really no fun things. Uh, so some more idioblasts. Now we're into the stinging cells. Yes. So yeah, so this is the stuff that like stinging stinging nettle. It's literally in the name uh, is known for. So it has these stinging cells that are shaped like hypodermic needles. So they will break when they are disturbed, and they inject highly irritating toxins and. Some of them contain prostaglandins, which are hormones that amplify pain receptors in vertebrates and increase the sensation of pain. That's just mean. (laughs) I I love when toxins do that of like, my job here is to hurt and I'm real good at making you feel that I hurt. That's, that's what I'm here to do. I do one job real good. And I, that's that's such a, a, a straightforward of like, I just want to make you regret this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Again, non-lethal injury. You are finding out. We are finding out. Another category. This, this, these are messed up. So these are these different types of crystalliferous cells. They are rough crystals of calcium oxalate. So if you chew on these things, they will absolutely tear up your mouth and the calcium oxalate in it can cause like bad things. Like they are toxic if they're ingested. Um, This is what's in spinach. So this is why we can eat spinach. Do not feed your spinach to pets Mm -hmm. because they cannot break down uh, the, the spinach and it'll get you know, messed up in their kidneys. Hmm. In addition to, so spinach are actually pretty tame in this, um, in this category. So some tropical plants, uh, there are tropical house plants, philodendron and diffenbachia. If a human or a pet, any mammal were to chew the leaves, they would experience a burning sensation, sensation in their mouth and throat accompanied by swelling, choking, and the inability to speak. Huh? Yeah. I don't like that. Yeah, no. Don't eat this plant. It causes burning and regret. Yes. Yeah. Like it won't kill you. Probably won't kill it. It might, but it like, you know, let's let test that theory. And then finally, deterrent level, lethal. Category five. Yes. (laughs) This is, this is the someone else finds out category. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually fun fact, um, having having dead like having the bodies of dead like insects or whatever like on a plant does also work as a deterrent and it also works to summon more predators so like it's better in every way (laughs) and you're gonna be kind of surprised by what's in this this level there are leaf hairs so trichomes leaf hairs and you're like are you kidding me so some of them are glandular so they can also like inject you but you have to think about the scale. Most of the things that are going to find out in this are going to be insects. So the trichomes on soybeans 
can prevent insect eggs from reaching the epidermis, from like reaching the plant surface. And the larvae will starve after hatching. Oh, because they can't actually get down. They the can't reach the food. Preventing yeah. them from getting yeah. to the food. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then on snap beans, the trichomes can impale caterpillars as they move across the leaf surface. That's wow. I was wondering if they just acted like pikes, just yeah. just yeah. you just yeah. are walking over spikes. Yeah, no, it's 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 actually kind of horrifying. Uh like I am very glad I'm not an insect because plants yeah. would be actively trying to kill me. Right, right. Yeah. Also, I sympathize with that first, the larval defense, because that's what happens when bugs walk on my arm, because they don't actually <laughs> touch my skin. Right. They just crawl across my arm hair. Because you've got those tri- tristomes? Tri- trichomes. Trichomes? Trichomes? Yeah. yeah. You're a plant. Just trichome it. <laughs> so plants have evolved all the... And I know you just mentioned a handful of your favorites, that this is just uh, across the world, across all of plants all sorts of defenses to deal with all sorts of things that they have to deal with. Shall we talk about the fossil record? Yeah, I would love to. I mentioned the reason I was thinking about phytoliths and I remember what it was. There was an episode, uh, one of our recent episodes where we talked about phytoliths found inside the gut of a fossil bird. Hmm. And it was evidence of those birds eating leaves of folivory in those birds. So you get, Plant defenses can be preserved to some extent in the fossil record. That's all that I know about it. How about you? I like that. Now looking at it from this perspective, it's very fine to look back on herbivore discussions Mm -hmm. after this of like, that was just a horror story for the plants. And this is, this is their response. But I also like that that example is, oh, this thing ate plants and the plant didn't want it to do that. Yes. That's the evidence. <laughs> that was also evidence of plant defenses. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating because one of the things that I very quickly realized when I was trying to do uh, research for this episode is how often we as mammals, as animals, take a side in the discussion of plant plants versus animals. And we talk about herbivory way more than we talk about the plant defenses mm-hmm. and part of that is reasonably like in the fossil record especially like it's we don't really have any fossil record of chemical or protein defenses just because like the nature of the beast they're very ephemeral and especially the further back you go like the harder it would be to get that sort of information so we are restricted in that sense to living specimens or estimations using um, molecular data. But like, I was, I was very frustrated because it was talking about like, yes, this is the first episode, you know, this is the first time we see a insect thwarting a plant this way. I'm like, well, okay. (laughs) So uh, unsurprisingly, pretty much as long as we've had land plants, someone's been trying to eat them. Uh, You know, that's just the, the nature of having an ecosystem. Like that's, that's just how it works. So I'm just going to kind of rattle through some of the some of these and then we'll put them into context. So I talked about cell wall lignification. So making the cell walls of plants, you know, structurally sound and so hard to digest. And we have evidence for that in the early Devonian. So this is something that's pretty fundamental to plants. Like plants have been trying for a very long time to to get them to people, I say people, get organisms to stop eating them. 
You mentioned filivery. The earliest known incidence of that is from the late Mississippian of Australia. And they were eating several pinules of a sperm. So basically, they're eating leafy bits of a seed fern. This comes up a lot. Apparently, herbivores loved seed ferns. Hmm. Like there's there's so much documentation of seed ferns being eaten by somebody. And I I feel like there's a story there and I don't know what it is. So time machine. Those were the best plants back in the day. I mean, seed ferns are great. Objectively, (laughs) they're great plants. Submit your request now for an episode about seed ferns. Yes, please. (laughs) Speaking of trichomes, those scary little stabbers, the lethal plant defenses. (laughs) Uh, we have evidence for them all the way back into the middle Jurassic. Oh, cool. And that's really interesting because today we typically associate them with angiosperms. And so, like, we're going way back into, into the fossil record. Like, it wasn't necessarily, you know. And that's the thing. Most of the defenses that I talked about, we associate with angiosperms. They're not only associated with angiosperms, but angiosperms are the tastiest plants, so they have to have a lot of defenses. Right. These are our flowering plants, which are not only the tasty ones, but also the ones that are everywhere. Yeah, they are the most common, the most speciose uh, group of plants today. If you go if you go outside and bite a plant, it's probably an angiosperm. <laughs> do not go outside and just bite a plant. <laughs> don't go outside and bite a plant. We are not doctors, but don't do it. <laughs> I am a doctor. Don't go outside. I will, you is. We are not medical <laughs> So uh, speaking, though, of these um, kind of bordering into more chemical defenses, it's a physical chemical defense, uh, latex, which I didn't mention previously. Yeah. So latex is something that can be secreted like inside uh, like leaf venation. It can be inside, you know, stems and things like the, the the rubber for, yes. from like a rubber tree plant, that's latex. Yes, um, so if someone has like a latex allergy, that's because it comes from a plant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the earliest evidence of latex as a plant defense has been around since the latest Cretaceous. The earliest example of the latissifers, so the, the cells that make... So the reason we can tell this in the fossil record is we have the cells that make the latex. So we have evidence of that pre- uh, preserved in silica from the Deccan traps in India. Oh, cool. Right at the end of the Cretaceous. Yes. Interestingly, uh, the earliest evidence of latex sabotaging, so insects coming through and basically snipping the connection with those those cells so the plant can't actually make the latex, is from the Eocene of Germany. Wow. Cool. Is that Messel? Uh, probably it's probably if it's the Eocene, I assume that if it's if it's cellular preservation yes. from the Eocene of Germany, it's probably yes. missile episode one sixty. Check mm-hmm. it out. And it's fascinating <laughs> because I didn't really go into this. I'll talk about it a little bit more uh, in a bit. But this there's a lot of this is the first instance of the plant of this plant defense, and this is the first instance of insects thwarting it. Yep, yep. Over and over and over. It is that oft discussed. Uh, evolutionary arms race. Exactly. I will be discussing it more in a moment. <laughs> oh, great. We will have discussed it a bunch in the episode before this, but we that's, haven't yet. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so fairly recently, so earlier this year, so this is recent find of fossil berries from the nightshade family, so Solanaceae. It's often reported as 
chili pepper relatives. So that's true, but it's not the most true. So they're from, I believe, the Eocene, and they are from the same tribe that modern chili peppers are in. So if we're thinking about our hierarchy, you've got family, subfamily, tribe, genus. So it's in in there. It's you know a bigger group than a genus, a smaller group than a family. So they're in the same tribe as modern chili peppers. So they're they're in capsicae and the only modern uh, the only genus today that has capsaicin is capsicum, which is the chili pepper family. So we don't know if this relative had capsaicin because one, it's a really old fossil and it's really difficult to do that sort of like um, like chemical analysis. But also, even today, within species that in capsicum that do have capsaicin, you can have so much variability, right? Like this is what is it? What is shishito peppers? There we go. It's like one in four is super spicy. Um, It's super variable. So like that may also be true in the fossil record. So, you know, it could be possible that those, uh, those fossil, those berries had capsaicin, but we can't know if those specific ones did. So maybe at that time period existed, but those specifically we have no way of knowing because one, chemical detection in the fossil record, and two, it's variable today. (laughs) Right. So we can get fossils of things that are related to or similar to plants with certain defenses today. But when it comes to chemical stuff or really difficult to fossilize stuff, it's very difficult to say... Did, did this plan actually use a defense like Yeah, exactly. And so one of the ways that we will kind of get at that is with like phylogenetic bracketing, right? You know, mm. it's this group today probably does, or this group today does, and this is sort of within that group or it's adjacent to that group. So it wouldn't be unreasonable to say. So yeah, going very like, we can't say for sure, but maybe possibly it's not unreasonable to say that that could be true. <laughs> Yes, right. that it, it would it would be very reasonable if like it would it would not be unexpected yeah. if it turned out they did. Yes. Once again, very similar to toxins and venom of mm-hmm. when we talked about that. Like we can't always confirm that this group used used uh, chemical warfare, but it sure would make sense if they did based on who they're related to. Right, exactly. And then finally, I will not be mentioning this more than briefly, but in addition to defenses, plants do also need to heal from oh. uh, you know, being damaged and you know what is released when a plant is damaged and helps them with their healing that would be resin which makes amber and i'm not going to talk anymore about amber we there's a whole episode about amber that's episode 62 you could go check it out exactly so i don't need to cover it here that's actually i get that is another plant heavy episode that ali wasn't part of yes mm-hmm. it happens so sometimes maybe, maybe someday we'll come back to it mm-hmm. putting your request yeah. now for a resin episode One of the cool things about the topic of plant defenses in the fossil record is that a lot of these, you know, something that's sort of really coming through in this discussion is how much plant defenses are familiar Mm -hmm. to us. And I, every now and then at the gray fossil site, for example, we will find like a fossil thorn or something Mm -hmm. off of a plant. I remember one of our volunteers, uh, David, not me, a different guy named David, (laughs) was going through... Uh, picking going through all the the tiny fossils and pulled out a thorn he took a picture of it next to a penny mm-hmm. and it was longer than the penny is this yes. like really 
massive thorn that he called the Mastodon Stabber. <laughs> that I mean, he, probably. Yeah. That, <laughs> I don't know that that thorn would have been a huge deal to a Mastodon. No. Uh, but it didn't so, say it stopped him. It, just stabbed him. It <laughs> was certainly a taper stabber. Yes. That, <laughs> was, that would have been mean to a taper. Yes, yes. Uh, so you get these. You can. Uh, uh, this is one of those categories of things that sometimes you could look at that, look at a fossil and go, oh, that's the thing. Yep. Yes. There it is right there. I know what that's for. <laughs> well, and, and it's it's one of those interesting categories because many of the defenses uh, we personally as humans are you know, interact with. Mm-hmm. Uh, not always in the way that it was intended, like spices <laughs> and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, anyone who's walked in the woods has had to deal with physical defenses of plants when you've walked through a bramble patch or something and gotten them caught on you or caught in your, you know, uh, uh, clothes. Or chemical defenses. If you've ever touched poison Ivy, that's contact dermatitis. So like it's, we, we were not intending to eat them, but we did in uh, run a, run a foul of these defenses. And it's a very common experience for many, many people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I often find myself surprised at how good a job. Oh yeah. Physical defense, like thorns and prickles. Like yeah. that, that'll leave a scar. Oh, those yeah. are, those are mean. There's the, that, the first time it draws blood, you have that moment of like, but you're a plant. You didn't even move. Yeah. And I wasn't moving fast. <laughs> yeah, it's not I like just, I ran into I you. Like rushed a, against yeah. it. When I was doing field work in Kenya, I was very lucky that I didn't have the experience that many people do of stepping on an acacia thorn. Because mm-hmm. that that'll go all the way through the sole of your shoe. I was yeah. I didn't have that, but there's a plant. The common the the common name for it is the wait a minute plant. <laughs> so what happened was we were eating lunch, and I was under I was kind of underneath the shrub in the shade, and I put on my backpack and I stood up, and my backpack got stuck in the in the bush, uh, and it was latched in there. And someone said, "Oh, wait a minute," and. <laughs> That's why it's called the wait a minute plant because like they had to come and like very meticulously detach my backpack. Uh, fortunately, it wasn't my body um, from this plant. But yeah, no, like they'll get you. Yeah, it's, it's impressive. Well, continuing with this trend of talking about plant defenses of the past, uh, what what can you tell us about the evolution of plant defenses? How does that happen? What are the trends? Uh, things like that. So as you mentioned and I alluded that I was going to also mention it again, this is an arms race, right? right. Like this is, you know, plants versus the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so you see these pulses of innovation and sabotage by plants and, and herbivores. So I believe you did mention this in the uh, the herbivory episode, but... We have evidence of herbivory all the way back into the late Silurian, early Devonian. Like basically immediately after plants get settled into the land, they had a moment to catch their catch their metaphorical breath <laughs> and then everybody starts eating them. The interesting thing. So we have this evidence from the you know late Silurian, early Devonian of herbivory. It takes basically between zero to 20 million years for fossil evidence of a plant organ and then fossil evidence of somebody who's eating it. Yeah, that came up in the when I was doing the background research for the herbivory episode that there's this lag time. Yes. Where a plant tissue shows up, 
Mm-hmm. And then a little bit of time passes, and then yep. we start seeing evidence of that getting eaten by things. Yes. So in the Paleozoic, it's super short. Mm-hmm. Like I said, zero to 20 million years. Like it's, you know, basically we have the same, uh, you know, for some things, the first time we see it, we also see it being thwarted. Yes. Once we get into the Carboniferous and then into, you know, the later, you know, in the later Paleozoic, we see this kind of second pulse of innovation in plant organs and herbivory. So we have this um, evidence of herbivory on roots, leaves, wood, seeds, within 54 to 98 million years of the evidence of the organ. So the organ appears in the fossil record and between 50 to 100 million years, we somebody's eating it. Right. By the next geologic period, <laughs> yes. something is now Somebody's eating. got it. Like I mentioned earlier, most of this evidence for herbivory from the Carboniferous is from is on seed ferns. Everybody wanted to eat seed ferns. And there has been some speculation as to why there is this lag. So basically, is it real or not? Yeah. Um, and, it, and it doesn't, the, the speculation that it's um, collection bias, you know, sampling bias, whatever, it doesn't really hold up. It seems much more likely that it might be that the lineages that were that were living at the time were not up to like they were not able for whatever reason to deal with this this they could not thwart this um and it took took a while <laughs> to to get there much of the innovation on both sides happened in the eocene hmm. the eocene is like you know i mentioned multiple things in the fossil section in the Eocene, many of the things that I found in my research all had these innovations in um, the Eocene. So like, for example, there's this great diversification of spiny plants in the Eocene. And that kind of makes sense if you think about it, uh, and like climatically. I know that I mentioned in the Oh, either fruits or seeds episode. I don't remember which one. I think it was fruits that, that you again you had these innovations, this this surge of innovations in the Eocene. It was a it was a great time to be a plant in the Eocene. Like yeah. well, it was also a great time to be an herbivore. Yes. Uh, we it, see the radiation of a lot of modern groups of mammals, including things like primates and mm-hmm. ungulates and other stuff that eats plants. Well, I was about to say, evidently not so great if they all started carrying knives. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're into carrying knives, it was a great time to be a plant. Uh, but I feel like these things might be related, you know? Um, so one of the things that I found very interesting was, so like I said, most of the evidence, that the fossil evidence that I found was for the physical defenses, but I really wanted to find something <laughs> about the chemical defenses, like the evolution of the chemical defenses. And I found this great review paper that was looking at uh, plant secondary metabolites, focusing primarily on alkaloids, but like in general on the secondary metabolites. And secondary metabolites are widely present in in plants. So you have them in your spores bearing plants. So like your bryophytes and your ferns, you in gymnosperms and angiosperms, like they are everywhere. And it has been speculated that these secondary compounds had already evolved more than 500 million years ago. So like this is core to being a plant. Right. Like before so, plants moved onto land, yes, they were already doing this. Yes. So the genes 
or the biosynthetic pathways necessary to make these exist in all plants and algae and even in many microorganisms. So that suggests that this is these are very, very old pathways. Which makes a ton of sense because like those things are going to be a lot of those defenses work on whoever's using them against whoever's trying to eat them. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't yes. have to just be a plant using a microbe using that against another predator would still be effective. So it makes sense that those defensive that those defenses would have been useful before we had plants. Yes. Exactly. Like being able to defend yourself is always good. Yeah. <laughs> so the key genes necessary for bi- the biosynthesis of these secondary metabolites are present in most, if not all, plants. And that kind of profile, the like the suite of biosynthesis pathways, suggests that the origin of these key genes, of the ones that allow this, may be found in microorganisms, like I had mentioned. That means that we plants might have gotten it through horizontal gene transfer from microbes. So this might not be a plant innovation. Yeah. This might be something that we plants stole. picked up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. plants stole it from microbes and then we stole them from plants to yes. make spicy stuff and uh, murder. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's fascinating that like this has been core, like the ability to make these compounds is like core to plants. And just kidding, they probably got it from microbes, which is fine because photosynthesis is also core to plants. And they definitely got that from microbes. Yes. <laughs> yep. There it is. <laughs> That's very interesting. Yeah. Neat. So uh, just kind of wrapping it up, talking about some alkaloids. They are they're most well known in angiosperms. So in, in modern plants. And they are uncommon in gymnosperms. They're pretty much only found in cycads and ephedra because ephedra, they're almost absent from ferns and horsetails and mosses. So I'm going to read a quote um, that I find fascinating. Angiosperms develop showy flowers to attract pollinators. However, these pollinators should only feed on nectar and not be on the aerial parts or flowers of a plant. So the above ground parts of a plant. As a sort of co-evolution, Angiosperms, which rely on animal pollination, started to produce a wide diversity of neurotoxic and fast-acting alkaloids to keep their animal visitors under control. (laughs) You are allowed to come here, and you are allowed to eat this thing, and you will take some pollen with you when you go. Yeah, yeah. And if you stray from the path, you will be made an example of. No, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Welcome to my home. Uh, make use of the living room. There's snacks out. If you go into the guest room, cyanide will be released. (laughs) You will not be returning. That is the full around zone and you don't want to go into the full around zone. And and, and that makes total sense because, you know, we we so often talk about the the strong co-evolution between pollinator and plant and how important it was. But we often ignore the fact that inviting an animal to come near you Mm -hmm. is very potentially dangerous because animals are the ones putting plants in danger more often than not a lot of the like there's many more things trying to eat plants and pollinate them well it's very much to use a comparison that will will appreciate it's there's a bunch of monsters attacking our city it sure would be cool if we could get godzilla to come over here 
and do something yes. about it, but <laughs> that we might end up with more problems than we started. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, honestly, yeah. So to kind of sum up, plants are terrifying and you should respect them. <laughs> and if you I, I, don't I, and know, I will. And if you don't know what it is, do not put it in your mouth. <laughs> that is a great role for both plants and animals. Yes. yes. Incidentally. I, like I said, for most things for in life, most things. if you're at the store, follow that rule. If you're yes. at someone's house, follow that rule. If you're just walking down the street, just follow that rule. Exactly. Allie, uh, thank you so much for showing us all some, for giving us this brief overview. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this is one of those great situations where we really get to explore a topic from the other perspective. Mm-hmm. Right. What is it like to live in the world as a plant? Mm-hmm. And what are the considerations that plants have to worry about? Uh, and this really does hammer home a point that I know you and a lot of other botanists and biologists like to make, which is that plants are not just passive things sitting around in the background waiting for something to eat them or step on them. There's a lot of features and functions of plants. There's a lot of evolutionary history that has gone into plants making themselves safe right in a world that is out to kill them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes actively wants that, to eat that, them. Disag- <laughs> that disagrees with that goal yes. <laughs> they, they, they say you you plants are doing such a great job i couldn't help but notice that you are everywhere and full of nutrition mm-hmm. <laughs> be a shame if something were to do something about that <laughs> exactly before we officially wrap up there is one last thing to do and that is our patron question Every episode of the podcast, we read a question submitted to us by patrons who, at a certain level of patronage, get the opportunity to submit questions. And we've got a bunch of patrons uh, who give us plant-related questions, which are great for our Alley episodes. This episode, there actually, we have an honorary shout-out patron question. Corbin asked, what do we know about the evolution of yummy, yummy capsaicins? And actually referenced that study. Mm-hmm. Allie, that you were talking about. So we did get to talk about that. Thank you, Corbin, for asking that question. And because that was already answered, we've got a second patron question that is also kind of about plant defense. It's sort of a regulatory question. Emily asked, can photosynthesizing plants overeat? Is there a mechanism that stops plants from creating more food once they've had enough? Uh, So can plants... Get a tummy ache. Eat too much sunlight. Yeah, can you can you have too much? <laughs> a sunny ache. As a plant. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. One. I like it. That's, so, that's what I get when I go outside. Yes. We just call all over sunburn. Top to bottom. So short answer is no. Let me explain why. So plants don't photosynthesize at like the maximum level. So there are multiple things that are going to prevent them from like getting their maximum photosynthetic capacity that you would necessarily expect for, you know, the amount of light. So there are two main um, restrictions. One is, or rather physical constraints. So one is the amount of light and one are CO2 concentrations. So if there isn't enough light, photosynthesis slows down. If CO2 concentrations are too high, photosynthesis has to slow down. Um, And the reason for that is this is a chemical process. Think of it as like an assembly line in a factory. You can keep ramping up the speed of the assembly line. And at some point, the parts are going to go flying off. (laughs) Um, And so there is a physical barrier to you. You can't go above this. In addition, plants, like I said, often 
you know, under photosynthesized based on what you would expect. And so I saw some speculation leading into this kind of, you know, plant defenses herbivory story is if plants lose leaves due to herbivory, can they amp up their photosynthesis in the leaves that they do have to compensate for that? And that's unclear. I've seen hmm. speculation that that may be, be the case, but no real concrete evidence to suggest that. But no, plants uh, plants are robots and the robot doesn't go that fast. Yeah. Well, it, it's it's another nice reminder of like, it, we so often, and you know, we did a ton of times in this episode, because it's, it's the thing you do uh, of relating plant behavior to, you know, uh, more, more recognizable animal behavior that we can associate with because we do stuff similar to that. And mm-hmm. so it's very common to do that. But it's also a nice reminder. It's like, yeah, but plants don't eat the way we think. <laughs> right. of, like, well, they don't swallow the, the, you know, air they're taking in to photosynthesis. They're not, it's not the same process. Right. Mm-hmm. And when we overeat, Oftentimes it is the physical act yes. of we have just had, we put too much food inside of our body. Yeah. yeah. Our, our, our bag literally can't hold <laughs> as much as we put in there. The chemical process of metabolizing that food mm-hmm. is going to be limited the same way that photosynthesis yeah. is. Because exactly. that's chemistry and that's math. Yes. That's, that's just math. And if the numbers don't add up, then it's not going to happen. Yep. Yes, exactly. Well, fantastic. Thank you for that very intriguing question, Emily. And thank you, Ali for answering it. And thank you everybody for listening to this episode of the podcast. Thank you to all of our requesters. Thank you to all of our patrons. Thank you to all of our listeners and uh, extra thank you as always to Dr. Ali Baumgartner for being our plant person. Yay, man, this would be such a biased podcast. Oh yeah. <laughs> if we didn't have Ali, like way more biased than it already is. Oh yeah. I'm, it, I could tell you like, it is so obvious that I have been here a while because y'all have started yeah, voluntarily yeah. adding plants. <laughs> I, I think I've, I've got plant news picked out for something coming up. I, I know yeah. I took notes, but I don't remember if it was news <laughs> or bonus news. So everyone will have to just wait and find out. We <laughs> will see. As always, there will be a blog post on our website after this episode that will have pictures and links to more stuff. We'll ask Allie to give us some links to references and things that we can share. As always, if you have an idea for a topic you'd like to hear, you can reach out to us. There is a link in the episode description for our topic request form. As always, always, if you'd like to help support the podcast beyond just the listening and and the moral support, uh, there's a link in the episode to our Patreon. And our patrons get all sorts of cool goodies that they get to enjoy, like asking questions or listening to the bonus news Mm -hmm. that Will just mentioned. Don't forget that this episode, uh, this episode comes out Right at the beginning of October, uh, which means that you are listening to this. It is October, which means that it is spooky season. Yes, it's time. There will be several episodes of us speculatively evolving monsters in our spooky series. And this year's theme is dragons. So we are very excited to talk about that. Yeah. And then next month, uh, we have our spooky live stream. So check our website, check our social media for all of that information. It's going to be good. Am I forgetting anything? I can't. I don't, not that I can think of. Anything from you, Allie? Sign off phrase. Hey, hey now, now. <laughs> Listen, if you wouldn't be happy if I started doing the plant episodes <laughs> and stealing your shtick, we'll have Allie do a snakes episode. Yeah. <laughs> Next episode 185 will be about leaf-nosed snake. Yes, It'll be all about snakes that... 
disguise themselves as plants. There Don't we go. Don't me with a good time. That sounds great. <laughs> and fruit-eating crocodilians. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we release episodes every fortnight. Stay tuned uh, for more episodes coming up. Allie will be back in another 10 episodes, as is tradition, mm-hmm. uh, for whatever we decide that you'll know, talk about next time. Uh, audience, submit your planty requests now, and we'll see if that if, if, see what happens. Yeah. Um. Well, I'm out of things to say, and now I don't even have. <laughs> yep. My thing. Yep. Yeah. It was stolen. <laughs> He's done. He's done talking now. I'm done talking. <laughs> <laughs> he just gets up and leaves. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Allie. Yeah. Bye. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.